You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow in prayer before we begin. Our gracious God and Father, you are merciful and kind to give us your word and to give us a picture of the glory of Christ. We thank you for that, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in freedom here and to read your word publicly and to to study it. And it is our desire that through the reading and study and preaching of your word that you would be glorified in and through your people and that you would work in us a work of sanctifying grace, um, of obeying grace, that you would give us the grace and strength to do these things We pray that your spirit would use your word to teach us and help us to see Christ more clearly, that we may love him and serve him. And bless this time, we pray, and open our eyes to your word. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. John chapter 17. Turn to John chapter 17. We're going to read together the first five verses of the 17th chapter of John. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. A prayer is a hard thing. I think that is probably the universal acknowledgement of the people of God. If I were to ask you for a show of hands, how many of you feel that your prayer life is adequate and doesn't need any improvement and you're satisfied right where you're at and you don't struggle with prayer, you don't, that's not a challenge in any way at any time, I doubt if anybody here would raise your hand. And, and if you do, I would really question you. It seems to be the universal acknowledgement of all the people of God that prayer is a difficult thing. It takes hard work. It is a spiritual discipline and it takes discipline. It is one of those things that the Lord uses to sanctify us and to conform us to the image of Christ. And yet in a day when we are distracted by everything, screens and, and activities and, and chaos and headlines, prayer becomes it seems increasingly more and more difficult. And yet I think that that is the universal acknowledgement of the people of God, that we all feel the need to be taught to pray and the need to understand what prayer is and to, and to grow in our prayer life. Uh, if that is your experience and, and your sentiment as well, then uh, I'm going to share with you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Remember the big book I shared with you last week? 662 pages of glorious exposition. Uh, This is the first of many quotes that I'll be giving you throughout John chapter 17. Lloyd-Jones says this, Now we all need instruction on this matter, speaking of prayer. We sometimes think that prayer is simple, but it is not. The great saints of all the centuries are agreed in saying that one of the most difficult things of all is to learn how to pray. If any Christian has been feeling cast down because he or she has found prayer difficult, They must not be discouraged because it is the common experience of the saints. The person I am worried about is the one who has no difficulty about prayer. There is certainly something wrong about him. Prayer is the highest achievement of the saint. It does not just mean saying a prayer. Incidentally, what a horrible phrase that is, people talking about just saying a prayer. But that's a very different thing from praying. It is a comparatively easy thing to say or read a prayer, but the main thing is to pray. And here in John chapter 17, we find our Lord praying. Jesus is not just uttering words, not just uttering words that he has uttered on other occasions and not just uttering words as if it were a matter of of rote reciting of ideas or or words to the Father. 
But here we have the great high priest, our great savior and shepherd, praying a prayer for his people to the Father. So if we need help in praying and we want to understand what prayer is and we want to grow in our prayer relationship with the Lord, then one of the things that is a benefit to us is if we study on and meditate and read the prayers that God has given to us in Scripture. In fact, I would I would suggest that one of the reasons why prayers are included for us in Scripture is so that we might learn from them. The book of Psalms is therefore our instruction. We read in the Psalms prayers of men who have faced similar life circumstances and disappointments and doubts and discouragements and the betrayal of friends and the anguish of, of, of the circumstances of this life. And it pours out, David and other men, Asaph, pour out their heart to God. Should we not conclude then that the book of Psalms and the prayers of the Old Testament saints and the prayers of the apostles are recorded for us so that we might learn from them and receive instruction, not only about how to pray, but the things of for which we should pray, pray and what our focus should be. And if that is true of the Old Testament saints and the Psalms and the New Testament saints, then it is certainly true concerning the prayer of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 17. Now, you might say to yourself instantly, hold on a second, Jim. He's perfect. What can I learn from the prayer of a perfect man? There is certainly no way on earth that I will ever be able to attain to a prayer like this. And you're right. You won't. But it is certainly there for our instruction so that we might see the things that pertain to the glory of God, the things that He was passionate about, the things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this prayer is here for our instruction, our encouragement. And I think that one of the things that we're going to learn as we go through this is what it is that concerned the Lord Jesus Christ and how the things that He prayed for pertain to the glory of God. So we're in John chapter 17, and we're going to be looking today at the first uh, couple of verses. Actually, I'll be honest with you, we're just going to be looking at verse one, not even all five verses that I prayed, it's just verse one. But we're going to be looking at the things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ in his prayer to the Father. And one of the things that we notice, and I just remind you of the of the outline that I gave you for chapter 17 last week in our overview. I gave you a three-point outline for this whole 17th chapter of John. In verses one to five, Jesus prays for himself. In verses six through 19, he prays for the apostles, the 11 men who were there with him that evening. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for those who would believe upon him through the work of the apostles, that is, you and I, or all Christians. So himself, the eleven, and then all of us, all Christians, his entire bride. He prays for all of them. So we're just looking now at the prayer that Jesus prays for himself. And although he is praying about things that concern himself, his glory, his authority, the work that the Father gave him to do, the people that the Father gave to him, and the glory which he would receive from the Father for accomplishing the work, though he's praying about all of those things, and they do pertain to him, I want you to notice that there's not a hint of self-seeking or selfishness or self-ambition in the prayer at all. In other words, even the things that concerned the Lord Jesus in his prayer concerned him, and that those things that concern him concern us. Not that we have the same concerns that he does, but he's praying, though he's praying for himself, he's really praying for things that pertain to us. For instance, the glory that he prays that the Father will glorify him with is a glory that will be His because He dies on a cross for sinners, for us. The people that He prays for are the people whom the Father has given to Him. The authority that He mentions, which He has received from the Father, is an authority that He has been given to give life to whomever He wishes, to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to Him. He prays that we might know Him and grow in our relationship with Him, because to know Him is to have eternal life. And the glory that He prays for at the end of the verse, is uh, end of the passage, verse 5, is a glory that He will share with us in eternity. So you see how all of these things that He mentions, even when praying about Himself, really are things that touch on us. They are things that concern us. His prayer, really, in praying for Himself, is praying for us. 
May the Lord be glorified through the Lord Jesus Christ. May God be glorified in and through the Lord Jesus Christ as he dies on a cross to pay the penalty for sinners and to give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given to him. That's in verse 3. So I want you to notice also how, how pertinent and significant the timing and the place of this prayer is in the Gospel of John. This prayer comes right after the Lord Jesus had given all kinds of instruction to the disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, uh, and 16. He has taught them, and this prayer comes on the heels of that teaching time. And what we find in the prayer is the Lord Jesus, having taught them all of these things, he is now praying that the things that he has taught them would be worked out and fleshed out in their lives, that the things that he has already taught them might become true in them, and that the Father would do this work in his people, and that the things that he has taught him might be realized in the disciples. And it occurred to me this last week that for those of you in our congregation who have a responsibility to teach children or to preach or to teach Sunday school, there's a lesson here about, at least it convicted me, we all understand the necessity of praying before you preach or teach, right? I think if you've you've preached or taught, you understand that you can never return enough to the throne of grace. You never feel like you are prayed up enough. If enough, I spent the whole week doing nothing but praying, I would never feel like it was adequate. But here the Lord Jesus takes... His, the subjects of his teaching, and after he has done teaching them, he prays for the people to whom he has just taught that. And that is a reminder to me that if you have a responsibility to teach or preach, there's a good lesson here about following up your teaching and preaching by praying for the people that you've just taught and, and encouraging and praying that those things that you have just taught them might bear fruit for eternity and might, and might actually come to fruition in the lives of the people. And this also happens just prior to the cross. And so keep in mind that we cannot interpret or understand this prayer except in light of the cross. It is only hours away. So everything that is here, the glory that he speaks of, the authority, all of it has significance and all of it can only be stood, understood in the shadow of the, of the cross. So let's look at verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. We're going to look first at the glory of the Son and then next week we'll look at the authority of the Son mentioned in verse 2. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said. Now I want to stop there just for a moment. I want you to notice the posture of the Lord Jesus in this prayer. I think it is significant. Why do I say it is significant? Because John mentions it. John is an eyewitness of the account, and he mentions here that the Lord Jesus lifted his eyes toward heaven and prayed a prayer. Now, there is something to be said about the significance of posture in worship and in praying. Our posture is significant to some extent. Let me give you an an example. Uh, Two men are in a worship service. The one man is sitting there listening to the sermon, with his uh, his knee leg up on his lap like this, he's sitting back, slouched down in his in his uh, I got to stand up before I fall over, slouched down in his chair like that, and he's holding a, a tall frappa something made with free trade coffee beans and and soy milk in the one hand, and his Bible is somewhere, it's open, maybe underneath the seat or on the floor of the chair next to him, and he's sitting there taking in what is is coming at him. The other guy is sitting there, leaning forward with his Bible open in his lap, looking from the text to the preacher, from the preacher to the text. Those two postures speak something, don't they? The posture of the first man says, Entertain me, preacher boy. I have come here to hear something, and I am observing what is going on, and I'm going to take this in like I would take in the latest blockbuster down at the movie theater. The second man's posture is not saying, Entertain me, but educate me. He has come not to observe something, but to engage in something. So posture is significant. What does the posture of the Lord Jesus reveal about himself here in this verse? As he lifts his eyes to heaven. Three things. First, it reveals to us the dependence that the Son had upon the Father. That, that idea of lifting your eyes to heaven in a Jewish context for a Jewish uh, person praying that was indicative of one's dependence on and recognition of somebody higher than them. So it's dependence upon the Father. Now, 
when we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're speaking of somebody who, in essence and nature, was equal to the Father and could say, I and the Father are one. He could claim that he did the work of the Father and that he was equal to the Father. And that is true. But in his incarnation and in his humility, he was made lower than the angels. And for that period of time, he was in submission to and dependence upon the Father and gave to us an example of what it means to live in constant dependence upon the Father. So though equal in nature concerning his Godhead, lower than God concerning his manhood. And he is both God and he is man. And so in his earthly humiliation, he did look to heaven in dependence upon the Father and gave you and I an example of what that looks like. And that posture is mentioned, for instance, in Psalm 123, where the psalmist writes, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Notice the recognition of somebody who is higher than you are in that prayer. To you I lift up my eyes, to you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. For we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. So that is a that is the prayer of a man who is in humble submission to God. It is the prayer of a man who looked to the heavens for his help, for his deliverance, for grace, because he was dependent upon the God to whom he was praying. So it is indicative of the dependence that the Son in the Incarnation had upon the Father for all things. Second, it is indicative of his communion with the Father. This is the posture of a man who could look into the face of God because he was familiar with looking into the face of his Heavenly Father. This is the posture of a man who communed and communed frequently with the Father because the Father was always with him. The Father never left him. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 32? Each of you will go to his own home and leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. This was a man who enjoyed the fellowship and communion that uh, being in, uh, the, the fellowship that being in communion with God brought him. And he looked into the face of the Father and is indicative of his, of his awareness of his communion with the Father in glory. And third, it was indicative of his righteousness before the Father. Not only his dependence on the Father and his communion with the Father, but his righteousness before the Father. This is a posture of a man who can look into the face of God without any hint of shame or with any, without any hint of guilt or inadequacy or unrighteousness whatsoever. Compare the posture of the Lord Jesus here with the example that he gives in Luke chapter 18 in the story of the publican and the Pharisee. Do you remember that? Jesus told the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Then Jesus said this, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The sinner, the publican, in that, in that story that Jesus gives, that parable that Jesus gives, he didn't look to heaven. Why? Because he was aware of his guilt, he knew of his guilt, and he felt the guilt before God. He knew he was unrighteous. So he couldn't, he was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. But Jesus is the righteous one, the sinless pure, holy, righteous Son of God. And so he can lift his eyes to heaven because he is in perfect communion with the Father. And so his very posture here is indicative of the righteousness that he had before the Father. Without any sense of shame, without any sense of guilt whatsoever, he can turn his face to heaven. Why? Because he is the righteous one. And he did no sin, and he knew no sin, and there was no sin found in him whatsoever. And so with a righteous heart, a pure heart, a holy heart, he can lift his eyes to heaven. Now you and I, we can lift our eyes to heaven, but why? Because we are righteous? No, because somebody else has made us righteous. 
in the sight of the Father. It is because of the righteousness of Christ that you and I can lift our eyes toward heaven. So we can lift our face to heaven, not because we are righteous in ourselves, but because we are resting in the righteousness that is given to us by Christ as his gift to his people at the moment of our faith. And so we are righteous in the sight of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has done. The unrighteous person who lifts his face to heaven thinks he is righteous. And in his own mind, he thinks that his own righteousness can avail with him before God and is sufficient to earn God's favor. But Jesus was not like that. He was not unrighteous in any way. But he's completely righteous, and so he lifted his face toward heaven. So that's posture. So what is the what is the posture of the Lord Jesus reveal? His dependence on the Father, his communion with the Father, and his righteousness before the Father. All of that is indicated there. What is the proper posture for you and I for prayer? What is the proper posture? If you were to read through Scripture, you would find that people pray sometimes with their hands raised, sometimes with their hands down, sometimes kneeling, sometimes kneeling with their hands up. Sometimes lying down, face down on the ground or on the floor, they pray. Sometimes sitting down, they pray. All of these different postures. What is the proper posture for prayer? I think it would be safe to say that the proper posture for prayer is whatever posture is indicative of the inward reality of the heart. Sometimes hands raised is appropriate. Sometimes hands down is appropriate. Sometimes your face and your hands is appropriate. Sometimes kneeling is appropriate. Sometimes lying down. Sometimes standing up. Sometimes praying loudly, sometimes praying quietly underneath your breath. All of those are given to us as illustrations in Scripture of of people's posture in prayer. So what posture is proper? Whatever expresses your heart. Now let me offer to you one caveat before we move on from posture. One caveat. That is not necessarily true in the public worship service. See, when we come here, the attitude of our heart in worship is not, I want to express whatever's on my heart, regardless of who is around me. Because you might come in here on a Sunday morning and the attitude of your heart, you want to crawl out of your skin, you're so excited. You want to hop around and, and dance and zip ribbons around in the air and do that in the middle of the aisle while I'm preaching and sing your own song in your own key at your own pace, a song that you're making up on the spot. Maybe that is the expression of your heart. But when we gather together for worship as a body, what we, we're not trying to express our hearts however we feel without any consideration of the people around us. I've heard worship leaders, Mel, never Mel or Ron, but I've heard worship leaders and pastors say, when you come together to worship, you should just worship as if nobody is around you. That is the worst conceivable advice for a worship service. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue if all of us were that self-centered and that inconsiderate of everybody else around us? If you want to worship like nobody is around, go worship where nobody is around. But when we gather together to worship, is not the purpose of corporate worship to worship like everybody else is around? That's the purpose of corporate worship. So when I come together to worship, I am, I try and worship in such a way that everybody else can worship with me. We create an environment in which we're worshiping together, not each according to the dictates of his own mind or imagination, but each according to this dictum or dictate. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but consider other people as more important than ourselves. So that our worship then becomes an act of glorifying God and serving and considering other people in that act of worship. So all of that from posture. Now let's look on to what Jesus actually prays. The intimacy that he is describing here is evidence. The intimacy that he had with the Father is evidence in how he addresses him. Father, the hour has come. And that term Father is used six times in this prayer. Typically, Jesus, when he spoke of the Father, he would address him as my Father. And I want you to understand how different that was than how the Jews would typically address God. The Jews called God Father, but in this sense, they would say our Father. None of them ever thought of God of themselves as having a personal relationship with God. So when you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus refer to God, the Father, as my Father, there's something that he is, he is distinguishing there. He is drawing 
a line of distinction between himself and everybody else, saying to the, saying to the Jews, I have a relationship with the Father that you do not have. And without repentance, they could not have. His relationship with the Father was different. He shared the very nature of God. And by calling God my Father, he is actually in that phrase taking to himself the very nature of God himself, and that is exactly how the Jews understood it. That's why they referred to him as our Father, recognizing position, rather than my Father, recognizing oneness or sameness of nature, which is why in John chapter 5, when Jesus called God his own Father, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And John says in chapter 5, verse 18, they picked up stones to stone him because he was calling God his own Father, thus making himself equal with God. And that's exactly what Jesus intended to communicate with that phrase, my Father. Calling God his own Father and saying my Father rather than our Father was an explanation of his deity. And he says, my Father, and when we call God our Father, are we saying that God is that we are the same nature with God? Not at all. We call him Father because we are his children by adoption and not by nature. So we've been adopted into a family and we have a relationship with him now that is similar to that that the Lord Jesus has, not by virtue of the fact that we are God by nature, but by virtue of the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God, and now we can call Him, not just our Father, but even my Father or Father. But all of that again because of what Christ has done for us. So He says, the hour has come. And we've seen in John that there's significance to that phrase, the hour, um, theological significance. So it actually goes all the way back to chapter 2. In fact, as we read through the Gospel of John, we almost we get to this point, and we almost feel as if the, John has been building up to this this declaration in verse 1 for the whole Gospel. In chapter 2, verse 14, when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Mary said to him to do something about the wine that they had run out of. And what was Jesus' response? My hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, the Jews kept trying to kill him. And as Jesus' brothers wanted him to go up to Jerusalem, and Jesus said, your time is always opportune. My time has not yet come. And in chapter 7, the Jews were trying to seize him and kill him. In chapter 7 and in chapter 8. And they were unable to do so, unable to lay hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And then John begins the... the <clears throat> Excuse me. John begins the narrative of this evening in chapter 13, verse 1, by saying, um, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. There's that recognition, even at the beginning of this evening in chapter 13, that His hour had come. And now He is praying to the Father, The hour has come. In other words, everything in the Gospel of John and everything in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ has been leading up to this moment and this time. And what is that hour? It is the hour that was fixed in the councils of the eternal triune God when the Father gave a people to the Son and the Son agreed to step into the world and to redeem those people. And there was an appointed time for the Lord Jesus Christ to die. And it was this day, the very next day, the hour had come, the time had come, that hour that was anticipated by the prophets, the hour for Him to be bruised for our iniquities and stricken for our, our sake. The hour for the, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of Mary to crush the serpent's head and his heel would be bruised. That is the hour. The hour that all of the Old Testament prophets predicted. The hour that all of the sacrifices foreshadowed. The hour that all of the law had promised would come. That is the hour that has now finally come. And Jesus is recognizing that that hour, the hour appointed for him by the Father, has finally come. And so he prays, Father, glorify, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son. Now what does Jesus mean when He describes or asks for the glory from the Father? You'll notice in verse 5, Jesus prays again for this. Now these these requests are slightly different, and we'll get to this when we get to verse 5. Now Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory 
which I had with you before the world was. Now, there are two requests here for glory, but they are slightly different. In the one, in verse one, Jesus is requesting that that the plan of the Father for his crucifixion and the redemption of the people whom he has given to him may be accomplished, which would result in his glory. And thus, when the Son is glorified, the Father would be glorified. In verse 5, he is looking forward to that exaltation after his crucifixion, after his passion and resurrection. He is looking forward to that exaltation when he would take his place at the right hand of the Father and receive that eternal heavenly glory that he had with the Father before the world was. Now, I want you to understand that for Jesus to even ask for something like this or to expect that the Father would answer a prayer like this is indicative of his deity. If these words were to come from the lips of any other man, they would sound insane. But they come from the lips of Christ, and they're not insane. They are an, they are an expression of his deity. He could pray to be glorified because he was the God and is the God who deserves all glory. We'll look at that more when we get to verse 5. So he prays that the Father would glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now how is the Son glorified, and what was the Son about to be glorified by? This is speaking of nothing else but the cross. The Lord Jesus should be glorified in the cross. The cross, from our perspective, is shameful, it's hideous, it's horrible. It seems as if it is the time of his ultimate defeat and his ultimate degradation. But from the perspective of God, It is the thing that would glorify the Son of God. Jesus was glorified in the cross and on the cross because His nature and His character were displayed at the cross. And what is it that glorifies God? Anytime God's attributes are displayed, His glory is manifested. Anytime God's attributes are displayed, His glory is manifested. So how was Christ glorified at the cross? Well, we see in Him all kinds of attributes on the cross. We see His humility, for instance, that he who exists in the form of God did not consider his equality with God something to be held onto at all costs, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his humility is manifested at the cross, and he is glorified in that. His love for his bride, the church, is manifested in the cross because he came and he paid that price to secure the, the to pay the sin debt for his sheep and to die for his bride, that he might present to him a pure and spotless bride, all of the people who have been given to him by the Father. So his love for his bride and for us is manifested at the cross. His obedience to the Father is manifested at the cross, that he, he obeyed the Father even to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was obedient to that point. And by that obedience, he was made the perfect high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And now he ever lives to make intercession for us. All of those attributes and so many more are manifested in, of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. So it is for his glory. And the glory of the Son is so connected to the glory of the Father that for the one to be glorified is for the other to be glorified. It is inconceivable that the Son should be glorified apart from the Father or that the Father could be glorified apart from the Son. For the Son to receive glory in His death on the cross is to immediately honor and glorify the Father as well. And so how is the Father glorified? Because the love of God is manifested at the cross, that He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. The love of God for His people is seen in the fact that He sent His Son into the world to pay the sin debt for His people. The justice and the righteousness of the Father are seen at the cross, where at the cross we see all of the all of the wrath of God for our sin poured out upon Christ. And how hideous is our sin? So repulsive to God, so hideous, so offensive to a holy God, that it costs not the death of bulls and goats or the blood of animals, but the blood of His very own Son. That is how hideous our sin is. And as we see the righteousness... And the justice of God manifested at the cross. What is the just demands of the law? It is crucifixion. And that is what I deserve. 
and so much more for my sin. But the just demands of God's righteousness are met at the cross. And so there we see the love of God and the justice of God meet at the cross. How can God forgive guilty sinners without compromising His justice and without compromising His righteousness? In Christ, He can forgive guilty sinners whom He loves because His justice is satisfied and His love and His mercy are displayed. And the wisdom of God is manifested at the cross. A song that we sang, I had in my notes, I was going to quote it. What wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride were placed upon the perfect Lamb who suffered, bled, and died? The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your Son rejoice around your throne. Oh, the wisdom of God that once devised this plan whereby the righteous requirements of the law of God could be met in Jesus Christ so that the grace and love of the Father might be expressed toward guilty sinners. So God is glorified at the cross, is He not? And Jesus is praying that God would be glorified, that He would glorify the Son and strengthen the Son to accomplish the work of redemption which He sent the Son into the world to do, and that in accomplishing that work of redemption, He would give glory, He would give uh, salvation to sinners, that sinners would come to know Him, and thus the Father would be glorified through all of that. John MacArthur describes this prayer and he says this, He was asking that the eternal plan of redemption be consummated exactly as it had been sovereignly ordained. Significantly, this was Jesus' only request for Himself in His entire prayer, that the Father would grant Him the glory that would be His through His death, resurrection, ascension, and coronation, just as it had been planned in eternity past. The plan had always been that the Son would be glorified through the redemption of sinners. And thus, Jesus' request for glorification was a prayer that God's eternal purposes would be fulfilled in the cross exactly as God had decreed it. That is what he's praying. May the eternal purposes of the triune God be accomplished through the work of the cross so that the Father may be glorified when the Son is glorified on the cross. He is praying, may all that has led up to this hour be culminated now in my death on the cross so that sinners might be saved and the triune God might be glorified. And do you understand that the whole purpose of everything, the cross and all of this, is not necessarily to save you and I. It is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. That is the primary concern of all of Scripture. That is the primary concern of the Gospel. That is the primary concern of the redemptive plan of God. The glory of the triune God. It is that God is free. The triune God is free to seek His own self-glorification through the salvation of sinners. Now that is not typically how we hear the Gospel presented. Typically, the gospel is presented in terms of what the gospel can do for you, what the gospel means for you, what the gospel offers to you. That God is, God thinks you are so spanky that He just had to have you, and He was willing to move heaven and earth just to spend eternity with you, and it is all about you. And there is, there is perhaps no gospel presentation in all of the world that plays to the narcissistic generation in which we live as much as that gospel presentation does. This is the generation of people who have coined the word selfie. We have outdone narcissists. We've passed up narcissists. And that gospel presentation which says, listen, it's all about you. Everything God does, it's all about you. That is an inadequate gospel presentation. It's an erroneous gospel presentation. And listen, it robs God of His glory. And it robs sinners of a transcendent view of a holy and righteous and compassionate God who would condescend to save sinners for His own eternal glory. Do we get the benefits of God's redemptive plan? We do. But you understand, it wasn't about you. It wasn't about you. It was about God glorifying Himself. And that is the greatest thing in the world. That is the greatest thing that could happen. You say, but isn't it selfish of God to seek His own glory? Who else's glory should He seek? 
Yours? Mine? You know what we call it when people seek the glory of something that is lesser than God? It is idolatry. When we place things above God, it is idolatry. If God were, when we place anything less than God above God and seek that as an ultimate glory, that is idolatry. If God were to seek somebody else's glory or good ahead of his own glory and goodness, if God were to do that, God would be guilty of what? Idolatry. Taking something lesser and making it greater than himself. Now here's the glory of God's redemptive plan. God has so orchestrated all things in heaven and on earth so that what most glorifies God is when he does maximum good to his people. In other words, God is most glorified when he shows the most grace to sinners. When sinners are saved and he pours forth his grace and goodness on his people, that is what brings God the most glory. So it is good news that God seeks his own glory because that means what? That he will do to for us the most good that he can possibly do in heaven and on earth. Since he is seeking his own glory, we get the benefits of that. Because God has determined that the way he is most glorified is in doing good to his people. So is it about you? It's not. We're along for the ride, as it were. It is all about God's glory. It has always been about God's glory. That is the one thing he seeks more than anything else. But listen, he does so not at our expense, but he does so through maximizing our good and showing us immense grace, because that is what brings him the most glory. So it is all for his glory. It has always been for his glory. That is the central call of the gospel. That is the central aspect of the gospel. That's the central feature of all of redemptive history. And we get the grace of receiving all of that from the hands of the triune God as he seeks his own self-glorification. And he is worthy of all honor and praise because he is the highest and greatest thing and being and person in all of the universe. Let's pray. Our Father, we do glorify you and thank you and we rejoice in the good news that you seek your own glory. And make us men and women who are committed to that glory understand that you have left us here for your glory. You have saved us for your glory. You sanctify us for your glory. You've secured us for your glory, and you will continue to uh, sanctify us by your glory and for your glory. You will also call us home to share that glory with you. Thank you that everything that you have done and your purpose that this is the case is for your glory and thus for our good. And that as your people, we rejoice in that, and we pray that you would keep us focused on your glory above all things, that we may not be guilty of idolatry. Give us an appreciation and love for the glory of the Son, and we do pray that you would glorify him and glorify yourself. And use us as the instruments to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.